Hello and welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind, how it works, mental illness and mental health. With me is Professor Ian Hickey. He's a psychiatrist. He's also the co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. And today we're discussing trust, our belief in the reliability or the ability of someone or something. Who do you trust? Why? Without a level of trust between each other, can a family, a community even survive? Do you trust anyone outside those you're very close to? Do you trust the Prime Minister, the Premier? Do you trust the Chief Health Officer? With COVID, trust, our trust, is being tested. Do you trust government messaging on public health or the threat of the virus or the safety of vaccines? Why do we trust some groups, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, but not others, politicians, lawyers, real estate agents? Is that deserved and rational? What if you trust someone and they let you down? What damage does that do to the relationship? What if you trust someone and they tell you something that's untrue? Will you believe them? because you trust them. If you trusted Donald Trump and he told you 38 times that COVID would just disappear, would you start to believe it even if there was evidence to the contrary? Uh, Ian, who do you trust? Who do you trust? Me, like many others. I trust people that I'm strongly bonded with and I trust people that look like me and sound like me, whether they deserve it or not. So there's two kind of key issues in that. Right. How do we form these kind of bonds of trust where no matter what the person says, we tend to believe them anyway? And secondly, yeah. how easy it, is it to trust people who are not like us? Is there a kind of biology behind that that makes it actually quite hard to override your instinctive or inbuilt distrust of certain things? And there couldn't be a better time to discuss this issue, James, than right now. If ever we needed to have trust in each other and trust in information and those who hold authority, it's right now. So as a social group phenomena, it's kind of really interesting time to look a bit more deeply. Where's it come from? How do you build it? And why don't we all have it? So so you mentioned some people you trust uh, because they're like you. I guess it goes back to, you know, you trust your parents, whether they're right or wrong. When you're three, you don't know if what they're telling you is right or wrong, but you, but you trust them. And it, then as you get older, you become a bit more discerning. Right, so the building of trust fundamentally within family groups. Humans are born pretty much useless, right? <laughs> they would just die in the field if they were not picked up, fed, protected, held, clothed, etc. So we are very dependent when we are born on the actual behaviour of others, parental group figures, to protect us. And we form very close emotional bonds, if you like. And actually they're inbuilt. Oxytocin gets released you fix on the face of the thing breastfeeding you, holding you, cherishing you, protecting you. Interestingly, so does the person who's breastfeeding and holding you. And they, oxytocin goes off in their brain, these strong emotional bonds. Not to think about. And is linked with things, the way they smell, the way they touch, the way they look. And strongly, this is trustworthy. This is something that actually takes care of me long before I've got any thoughts about the issue. And of course, those people tend to be people that look like you and talk like you, and smell like mm. you, and behave like you, actually, in particular ways. So we have very strong, it's very easy to trust those who have actually engaged in those behaviours, and without thinking about it, you just assume that they will always do that. Interesting in terms of breaches of trust, 
how damaging they are within those relationships. In fact, if you are harmed by those people or not protected by those people, very hard to trust anyone else subsequently. Right. But the other oh, side so of the you're, coin... So you're saying, sorry, just on that, that if someone, if a parental figure, sibling, someone you're close to when you're growing up does a breach of trust that's more significant than... Uh, I told you I'd buy milk, but I forgot, like a significant breach of trust. That will actually affect you in your 20s and your 30s with with friends, in relationships all through your life? Yes. Oh. And this is really important because this is why the issue about childhood relationships and the emotional nature of those and the protective nature of those are so critical. So those of us who are very lucky to have been loved and cherished and taken care of no matter what we were actually like <laughs> – how difficult we were as kids, tend to be more trusting and are more likely to form more trusting relationships in adult life. Like, we've had the better of it. We sort of expect it'll go well. We put our faith in others, who we don't really know at all, to form similar kind of things as we go. And why it's extremely difficult for those who have been traumatised, who those have been disrupted, those have been abandoned, those have been abused, to trust anyone. When someone says to them, you know, my wife, trust me, they go, I don't know about that, you know. (laughs) Actually, I haven't experienced like that because trust involves really, really handing over control over your own destiny to somebody else in a particular kind of way. So it it plays out in other areas. I'm personally, um, you know, rather medical and I go into medical and other situations. I'm incredibly trusting of those people, doctors, nurses, others. Yeah, fine. Yeah, that's right. Put me to sleep. You know, restart my heart. No worries. Is that... Is that because you have, like, there's almost a, a cognitive bias there in that you want the doctor to be competent. I want the mechanic to be competent. So I'm going to unconsciously bias my own perception of him or her to think they are competent. I don't even think about it. I don't even think about it. I mean, I've had been, I mean, I'm mean, i recent age, James, where stuff's happened to me. But, you know, I remarked on this a little while ago when I had to because of a abnormal heart rhythm thing, go into an emergency room and, and actually they do this thing where they stop and restart your heart, right? Wow. And this poor little doctor saying to me, um, now, you know, Ian, um, <laughs> there are some risks associated with this procedure, you know. I said, yeah, I know, I might die. <laughs> Mightn't work. <laughs> you know, I'm saying this in a rather light sort of tone. Cavalier. Cavalier, but I'm not actually worrying about it because I've actually got deep trust. Now, rationally, I've also worked in hospitals and I know all sorts of stuff goes wrong. Stuff happens all the time, you know. There's not everyone's not the same, but it doesn't matter. I'm intrinsically trusting. I've had good experiences. I have strong beliefs in those things. So I'm not even thinking about it. I'm putting aside actually the rational, what might be rational to go to tell me a bit more about that. How risky are you? Do you know what you're doing? You know, how good's the anesthetist? How good's the I'm not doing that. I'm not questioning them. I'm going, yeah, good. Put me to sleep. See you in an hour. All be good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's because I have the benefits of a long series of trusting relationships in in life, but also experiences within those particular areas. If you haven't, if those things have been disrupted, particularly disrupted in childhood, very hard to trust. Now, of course, if you'd been abused by a doctor or you'd had a bad experience in a thing and things had gone wrong, you might be a bit reluctant to go down that path. So breaches of trust that break that thing suddenly throw out, hang on, this real cognitive dissonance between I know I should trust these people, but I really have had experiences that say, I'm not so sure about this. What Do we have to work hard at maintaining the trust of those we're close to, that those in our family and social groups? Uh, you know, there could be little things like, uh, 
you know, James said he'd be finished work at six and be able to have dinner with the family, but he didn't. And if that happens once, that's okay. But if you keep saying it and keep not doing it, maybe that erodes the trust in a, you know, in a spousal relationship, in a family relationship. Is that right? Little things can become big things over time. I think they're more about annoyance, irritability, you know. Yeah. The big ones, the trust is a much, what I'm arguing here is trust is a much more fundamental, if you like, deeper thing. So major breaches of trust, you know, in intimate relationships, major breaches of trust in family sort of situations. And of course, then when they go wrong, they're very hard to put right again, you know, once they've yeah. been major breaches of trust. So trust is not just the daily interactions in things. It's a more fundamental situation where you've formed close bonds, you've formed close attachments. In fact, you forgive all sorts of annoyances and <laughs> failings, yeah. all sorts of stuff. You maintain but, but an optimistic view. But if your partner had an affair, that might be more f- fundamental. Correct. Yeah. And harder to you know, rebuild. Be hard yep. to rebuild. Yeah, I think that's one of the more, more interesting – interesting, that's a bit challenging, isn't it? This is one of the more fundamental things that people face. Can you rebuild those trusts once that fundamental trust has been broken in one of those intimate bonds, whether that's between intimate partners or between parents and their children or among siblings? Once those things have been broken, there's been some major breach of trust in those areas. Not so easy to rationalise away, not so easy to talk away. The thing – this kind of connection that humans have um, that's built. And, I, and many, much of it, in a sense, non-verbal, much of it in facial expression, in understanding, and in really believing that the person and you are acting together, you know. So, yeah, so we want to talk about trust in institutions, but I'm just curious, you know, if that had happened in a relationship, and perhaps it has to some listeners, you know, there's been a fundamental breach. For example, someone's had an affair. How would that person go or how would they both, if they both wanted to rebuild that relationship of trust, how would they go about doing it? Well, it comes back to something we'll discuss about institutions, which is transparency. Like, And you see in all these kind of reconciliation type things, either at the personal level or at other larger social organisms, is there transparency? Is there a kind of honesty? Like what has really happened here? Yeah. And then, if you like, a starting over. But time and the scarring of that, not easy. So people do repair relationships. They do put them back together again. But boy, it ain't easy, you know, in those situations. And uh, often don't get back to where they were before. They might develop a way of working. They might develop agreements about particular things, might come to a new understanding of things. But, but, but difficult and takes time. Yeah. You know, so okay. These things really bust up some of the things we really depend on. You know, for ordinary functioning, trust is really important for us to be able to function as social groups, as with intimate groups or within the wider society. And if you trust someone and they tell you something that's untrue, like if when I was four, my mum had told me that uh, it's fine to cross the road even if there's cars coming. She didn't. But if she did, I probably – I would have believed her and I would have trusted her and I would have done it and I would, would be dead, I guess. Um, can if, – if people we trust tell us something that's untrue, Donald Trump says COVID is going to disappear, even if part of our mind thinks that's not true but a trusted figure has told me, there's a big conflict there, isn't there? Yeah, and guess who wins? Mm. Not truth. Oh, damn. No, and this, really? is what's so inter- this is what's so interesting about trust. I mean, and you just raised excellent examples. People who are apparently trusted who say completely untrue things, demonstrably untrue, falsely untrue. In fact, in the whole Trump things about COVID, I never said that. And then someone plays the video, he said exactly that. And then people who watch it go, no, no, he didn't say that. No, no, no. What he meant was they give you some other explanation. They give you, oh, no, no, look, that's not right. 
Or they even say, oh, look, you've doctored the video. You know, he didn't really say that. You know, so the idea, which is one of your favourite ideas, James, that rationality and the sort of bleeding obvious will override these kind of emotional kind of things. You see everyday evidence where it doesn't. So people do do the most remarkable things, which are demonstrably untrue, but they heard it from a trusted a person they trusted. Yeah. Overrides those sets of ideas, and they go with the person. They go with the strength of the bond, the strength of the attachment in the face of despite considerable danger. The interesting one you said about crossing roads, right? Despite the fact it may put them in considerable danger, they still tend to go with the person that they trust to do that. It's not easy to talk yourself out of it if you are really yeah. convinced that that person is acting in your interest. So let's move on to institutions. With COVID, of course, our trust has been tested. Now, if you think about this question, do you trust the Prime Minister, the Premier, the Chief Health Officer? And if, if you don't trust one of them, I'm just wondering, say you said, I don't trust the Prime Minister. Is it just this Prime Minister's fault or is it the fault of every Prime Minister and, in fact, every politician that has said something either untrue or played games with the truth over the last 20 or 30 years and gradually eroded your trust to the extent that, you know, whoever's the next Prime Minister will start off with a huge trust handicap. Yes. All Prime Ministers are starting 30 yards back Yeah, the next stall gift sprint. Yes. <laughs> and some, I won't come to lawyers, James, but others and real estate agents might be 30 yards behind them too. I mean, there is this issue of... Uh, people who say stuff for obviously other reasons. And you see this in the notion of election promises and broken promises and the idea that you can't walk back or change your mind. You know, trust in institutions, I'm going to broader issue here, the institutions that were very trusted, churches, certain sort of community groups, to some degree uh, government in a particular, you know, world, erosion of the trust has clearly dominated these areas for quite a long time. And so we now, in any, any of the national surveys or international surveys of trust, belief, afraid to say, political leaders, on the whole, unless they have unusual characteristics, and we'll come to this, some have unusual characteristics, dare I mention it, Jacinda Ardern, actually are strongly trusted because of the way they behave in the public domain, even though they're very good politicians. Others... Not so good. And I think you probably just went for the Donald Trump gold medal winning, followed shortly <laughs> afterwards by Boris Johnson on the silver medal and some others, and then down in some you know strongman sort of authoritarian figures, which no one actually believes. But you know, so I think we have a problem within our institutions because if we can't trust our governments, those who are actually controlling these things, that's a major social problem. Yeah, and and COVID has presented them well a challenge and an opportunity in terms of trust, um, particularly the premiers who often start from a far lower um, you know visibility and awareness than the federal prime minister, etc. They you know last year, so we're recording this in August of two thousand and twenty one. In two thousand and twenty, when COVID came. We wanted to trust those premiers and we generally were thinking, good on you and well done and look at them every day. They've had to adapt quickly and they're doing stuff and, you know, this is okay. I feel safe. And now as we go into our second year of it, that trust is beginning to perhaps erode a bit for some people. Um, Jeez, James, you're putting that mildly. Yeah. <laughs> erode a bit. So it's very interesting, very when things are really scary, and let's face it, COVID-19 was really scary back in March, April 2020, 
And I think we the want Prime someone to trust, right? Yeah, we need someone to trust. We need someone to make smart decisions who's got more evidence than any of us has, more access to information, more access to specialist advice, health, etc., to do what is in our mutual best interest. And I think the Prime Minister's uh, attempt at that stage is to say we'll now have a national cabinet, a bit like war cabinets, you know, big threat. We'll put aside our petty differences, our party political, we will act in the common interest. Everyone goes, yes, definitely. That's exactly what we need. Really smart Way parents to, to get their act together. Get it together. And then drag some really important people, trusted chief health officers, real doctors who are not really political, who just really try and, you know, they're a bit daggy. They look trustworthy. They generally say what they think. They don't think they're just blurring out the party lines of the day. You know, they look like people who know what they're talking about, but they also look like, and it's important for many of us, look like the sort of people we would trust in particular right. ways. Now, that's interesting. So I think that worked quite well for a while, as long as they are also honest with us, James. Yeah. Now, if they start to tell us all sorts of different stories and they all start to fight and they all start to behave according to their own political interests and it seems to be about the next state election or whatever else, and really, is the health advice that different in Queensland from Victoria? Really, is New South Wales so exceptional? Really, is Western Australia such a completely different universe? Then we go, hang on a second, hang on a second. We wanted to trust, but they begin to sound like politicians again. <laughs> and then yeah. they, their credibility starts to slide. And then that's, we, I think we see conspiracy theories, we see mistrust, we see people's own interpretation of the information start to take over. And guess what? Bad for all of us at that point. So this is a really interesting test of uh, who's good at this. Now, I just, and, and the way that people talk and they behave... So I just love, if you ever see a video, you should go to YouTube and see Jacinda Ardern introducing the lockdown in New Zealand. She's in her tracky suit and her jammies, and she says, now we are all going to bed. <laughs> Put the kid to bed, I'm at home, she's in a, you know, we are in, we are, and you're thinking, oh my God, if ever there's a person you could trust to be acting in the national interest, she is doing it, she's living it. And I hate to say it, but she's got that warm maternal voice and just oozes empathy. You know, this doesn't look political. This looks like us and the sort of person that we would intrinsically trust. She's got the facial expression. She's got the whole body kind of presentation, even though she's a politician. <laughs> so, so the things you were talking about then are very hard to quantify, many people have commented that Julia Gillard, former Prime Minister, was very much like that in person, but found it very difficult to translate those things via the camera lens or on radio. Is that just something some people are lucky enough to have, the ability to create trust, a kind of a head start? Yeah, so the body language of it matters. And when you say hard to quantify actually you can quantify it so studies i'm involved in which look at facial expression and look at the way people look on a face the way they use their particular emotional expressions tone of voice other things you can actually quantify that as to that we respond to going oh i like that (laughs) i feel warm about that my heart rate goes down i feel safe (laughs) you can actually quantify from one to another that effect now of course a lot of people try and mimic that effect or have difficulty the julia gillard one i think is an interesting one because i think my own experience of the previous prime minister exactly as you said is that um, in person, it actually is a warm and concerned and engaging person, but that didn't necessarily come across in other things. I blame media training for that, James. You know, people say, yeah, stick to the I thing, agree. don't totally say, you know, appear to be wooden or appear to be sticking to a set of lines to control anxiety or whatever, communicate a message. This goes to another thing about transparency and honesty and, and reaction. So a lot of people who pretend or are, and I think we're politicians, and other, we don't trust them. There's nothing not right about the facial expression, about the language, about the, you know, never answer the question, never, never appear to be telling the truth. Whereas others 
actually, we are very good at truth detection or, in the other states, lie detection. <laughs> We're very good at the person doesn't really mean it. The body language doesn't match. The facial expression doesn't match. Everything yeah. is wrong so, about it. And we go, guess what? As humans, we actually detect that very quickly. We're very, And Australians are particularly good at going, well, that is just... Not true. Yeah, that didn't <laughs> yeah. feel right. It's 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 at a almost at a subconscious instinctual level. People say that didn't feel right. Some politicians look like they're smiling, like there's someone off camera with a gun pointing it at them, saying "smile." It's that terrified, uneasy smile. So you, you mentioned this at the beginning. Do we? You, you mentioned we tend to more easily trust people who look like us. So we've talked about the chief health officers and some are male, some are female. They're all pretty much in the middle-aged genre. But they're all, as far as I can think of, they're all white and they're all Anglo-Saxon and many of the communities they're trying to reach out to are are not white and are from different ethnicities. Is this a significant impediment in building trust, even again at a subconscious level? Yes, I wish you wouldn't word the subconscious. It's built in. This is the way we are wired. Right. By subconscious, you mean we don't even think about it. I wish they would think about it right now because, yes, this is the reality. I, I, guess, what I, meant guy, by, yep. I guess what I meant by subconscious is I'm looking at you and I'm coming up with a conclusion. I trust you or I don't, but I'm not really working that out in a, there's this factor and this factor and this factor. It's just a conclusion that all the processing is done and I'm not really conscious of it. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I love the fact your brain's doing stuff all the time. Yeah. You think you're, you think you're thinking about it. You're not. It's drawn conclusions long before you've had a thought. A thought comes later. Yeah. So I've decided I trust this person. I don't trust this person. I said, why do I trust this person? Why do I not trust that person who's a different colour, a different background, has different facial expressions and speaks a different language? Mm. Well, intrinsically, guess what? I'm not going to trust them. And in fact, you can study this as has been studied in the primate world and other worlds. You can see it's an instinctive response. So we instinctively believe trust, go close to those that look like us, smell like us, behave like us, have emotional expressions like us, and think, oh, well, they're like us, they're trustworthy. Presumably coming out of those bonds and those social groups, we that's the kind of stuff we're used to. We, we read that stuff very well. We don't read it well in others. And we are suspicious then of, hang on a second, we don't know. We're partly confused and we're partly suspicious of what is really going on. So if you wanted to communicate best in a multicultural country like Australia, you would have lots of different people telling those messages in the right languages, in the right ways, in the right groups, so that people from those groups will go, that person looks like me, they sound like me, I can tell their emotional expressions are true. <laughs> right? Yeah. They're telling me the truth. Whatever other nonsense is out there on social media or on some other conspiracy theorist, that person telling that thing like me is one of those peoples in those groups I intrinsically trust. And I'm very likely then for to follow that. So one of the major failings at the moment is the white Anglo kind of view of the world and the white Anglo solutions. And you see this further. Do you trust men in uniform, James? Uh, not in. Now, you've been a lawyer, right? I say this yeah. because you've been a lawyer. <laughs> I have members of my family who are lawyers who are very distrusting of what the police say. Yeah. By contrast, I, you know, generally myself have not been harassed by police and whatever, and I generally think, oh, well, they're a reasonable person. Other people who have been harassed or had bad interactions with the law or come from places where they've been chased down by men in uniform, you know, we're now sending ADF forces into certain suburbs and we're not worrying about it because most Australians think that's fine. Many, most white Anglo-Australians who've never had bad experiences think that's okay. 
Others are terrified. Others don't trust people in uniforms. They've had really bad experiences. Jackie Troy on this program a little while ago talked about Indigenous people who've got, you know, just expect when they see a police car to be pulled over and be harassed. You know, there's a common experience in that community. If you want to have people, you know, you have Aboriginal people in uniform or you have others, you know. So yeah. these are things that people have to think about. They can't say, oh, well, that doesn't matter. We can't, look, that's just how it is. You know, these are well-meaning people. Like the intention might be fine, but you can't just say it doesn't matter. Everyone should just get on with it. And, and it comes back to something you said at the beginning, that if there is trust broken in families, then children who grow up in those families might find it harder to trust later in life. So similarly, I assume if you come from a country where trust has been broken, where leaders have lied to you and, and police have arrested you or harassed you for no good reason, and then you come to Australia where there is less of that, it'll still be harder to trust the leaders because of your previous experience. And so leaders have to, A, understand that and B, work out strategies to overcome it. Yes. Would you like to take over the public health messaging, James, around the COVID <laughs> thing? I mean, this is bleedingly obvious to anyone who's interested in human behaviour and the intrinsic nature of this. And in fact, you yeah. ignore it. What's interesting, of course, is marketing people understand this all the time. They do. People are trying to sell you stuff. They get people like you to say, here, this is good for you. This will take your wrinkles away. This will make you look young. This will make – and you go, yeah, I know, yeah, I'm going to buy that, that piece of you know, leftover vegetable matter from the bottom of the garden, put in $600. Yeah, that'll work. No problem. You know, so you see this, and you see this in a lot of the, dare I say it, the well-being industry. You know, you cure cancer by eating the raw vegetables from the bottom of the garden, or you'll, you know, never develop Alzheimer's if you simply drink this concoction that somebody's just brewed in the back place. Yeah, but it's marketed to you by someone who looks like you, has the same cultural assumptions, and you've got strong trust in those figures. Why people have trust in Hollywood figures, I don't know. But, you know, it goes to the fact marketers understand this stuff. Why do we buy this stuff? Why do we do it? Because, you know, there's a desire. Of course, we want to not get cancer and we don't want to get dementia and we, we want to have those things and this idea, we take it. Even though it's rationally complete nonsense, we go, yeah, that feels right and it's I, coming I to I me can, from someone we like. I think I can answer why Hollywood actors are trusted and can sell you things because they have been essentially selected, the very successful ones, of being able to communicate and to be able to be relatable and empathetic um, more so than the other 999 people who auditioned. So they've got that Jacinda Ahern thing. They can they've look got at it. you they got and it. make they you feel special. It. Yeah. They can fake it. The rest of us really aren't that good at faking it. So they're actors. So let, <laughs> yes. Let's talk about some groups that are trusted and some that aren't. So trusted doctors, nurses, pharmacists, Politicians, lawyers, real estate agents, not so much. Uh, and that's been fairly consistent, I think, over surveys f for the last 20 years. Is that deserved and rational? I mean, I've had pretty good experiences with doctors, nurses, pharmacists. I haven't really had bad ones with lawyers and real estate agents. I don't know. So interesting, just up the health bits, it's kind of interesting that we do trust. I'm very glad that we do trust doctors, nurses, etc. Yeah. People will be surprised, might be surprised about the pharmacist one, but in the surveys we did about people who really trust things, why? I was a bit surprised. I was doing some of the pharmacy associations at the time. People really liked them. Well, they said, well, we people we interact with every day. Yeah. And they tell us stuff and they take time and they discuss and they have a kind of conversation with us that seems actually kind of open. And over time, we've come to understand that they seem to be acting, along with selling us all the other stuff in the shop, they seem to be acting in our interest. And in fact, we trust them a great 
deal. We've had successful interactions with people even, and they've come to know us. So it's a, there's an iterative process here. Haven't met them one off. Interestingly, in my world, and not often discussed, nurses do better than doctors. <laughs> people really like nurses. Now, that's really that's interesting. That's they're around more. Like nurses, are there, if you're in hospital, you'll see nurses probably nine Me? times as many times as a doctor. Well, let's be clear. Nurses run hospitals, yes. So the yeah, people right. running the joint, yes, that's right. But it's kind of interesting because doctors like myself, doctors seem to think, oh, I'm a very trustworthy person because I've got expertise, right? Yes. I've got the knowledge. So you must trust me. I've got the science. I'm on top of the science pyramid. So you must trust me. People go, yeah, don't know about that. I think there are a lot of other characteristics about nurses in the classically caring kind of way. I was reminded of this recently, being stuck in a dentist chair, and I must say I'm terrified of dentists, a lot of bad childhood experience, blah, 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 about to have some major dental procedure. And I was obviously looking a bit sweaty, anxious, not looking so well. And the dental nurse did a very unusual thing. She put her hand on my kind of shoulder, right? Oh. She just intrinsically did something. The dentist didn't. He was terrified about what he was about to do. He was going to worry too, you know, which probably wasn't helping. you know. But she did something warm, caring, whatever, like – trust us but she did it in a non-verbal communicative just intrinsic kind of way i mean it's not someone i yeah. you know and i think the nursing areas of kind of touch of kind of care of that classically and often a little bit stereotypically but maternal type way are people that we trust they're people who do a lot of the physical things in hospitals the washing the turning the caring you know they're tending to things in a very personal and very intimate way and we trust them they're also it, people who, who are clearly acting in your interests and demonstrate that. So I trust my optometrist because the first time I went in there, I tried on a pair of glasses. I thought, I think these are pretty good. And he looked at me and said, you're not buying them. They look terrible. And so he, he could have sold me really easily a pair of expensive glasses, but he put me and his expertise, he used them not to make a sale, but to try and do something good for, uh, good for me. And when people do that, I think, they clearly aren't just acting in their own interests. It builds trust. That's right. It's interesting with doctors who are sometimes seen to be a little bit detached, don't do that, and people worry when they see the size of the bill sometimes, are they really acting in my own interests? My favourite surgeon is the one who won't operate on me. <laughs> yeah. Even though I've tried to talk him into it many times. It's like, come on, Jeff, come on. Let nope, Ian, it's not well, that- in your interest. It's not in your interest. And the trouble is, now I trust him deeply. <laughs> exactly. That's relevant for lawyers too, because a lot of people, I think part of the reason that lawyers are distrusted in the community is because people get to the end of a long piece of litigation, even if they're successful, and think, why do we do that? That costs so much money that the win is, is you know, not that valuable. And if you lose, it's terrible. Sometimes the, the lawyers you trust will be the ones that say, look, you can pay me a lot of money and over the next year we can go to court, but it's better not to. Just settle yeah, it. I, yeah. I think it's a really good example. I mean, I hate to say this, but best lawyers I've ever met have been the ones going, don't litigate, just yeah, stop exactly. right now. And in fact, they know that because the emotional trauma and the difficulty for people not So when people behave in ways that are clearly self-interested, and at times I think this is why politicians, lawyers and real estate agents don't come up so well, is that the transactions appear to be in the interest of one party, that they're not putting your interests first in the particular ways that these are communicated or the transaction sort of takes place. With those classically in health, I mean, those in health we need to trust because we're ter- let's face it, we're terrified too. You got to, yeah. those people are going to do stuff you really don't want to see, right? Life in their hands. You know, you have to, in those situations are really fearful. You've got to be able to say, okay, hand over. How do you feel about airline pilots? You know, I'm, I really want to trust them. 
Yeah, I see them in uniform. I go, go for it, mate. I was once stuck on an airport in A380 in Los Angeles, and the pilot was walking around the plane because it had stalled. And he said, um, we're waiting for the technicians because we don't know how to start this thing. <laughs> I mean, that's not what I want to hear. Okay? Exactly. I want to believe, even if it's not true, that you know what you're doing, buddy. In our last few minutes, let's talk about some practical things that we can do to build trust. So we've talked about – we just talked about one, put yourself in – Act in someone else's interest, not your own. Let's start small in in family groups, in in groups of people that we live live with. What can we all do to build trust? So one of the ones is the responding to distress. So the other thing you trust, but when you're distressed and people know it, they come in. So I was about the dental nurse, hand on your shoulder, or in your family in particular ways. So rather than arguing with you, they actually relieve anxiety or distress in particular ways, and often that's non-verbal. It's often through hugging, through holding, through being with. So there's a marvellous expression in the uh, mental health processions I'm in about the being with. Rather than trying to solve everything, just being with people in times of distress and in times of difficulty, whether it's for them alone or in threat. The people you want in the foxhole with you, the people who'll be there no matter what is happening in that particular way. So that being with is really hard. So, you know, it's not always the easiest thing to do. And then behaving in a way which gives comfort to probably yourself as well, you know, things. So a lot of the things are actually nonverbal. And we do this intrinsically, you see this between grandparents and grandchildren, parents and whatever, but in a lot of our own relationships, we need to do that more. We need to yeah. kind of just stop and recognise it rather than try and solve it to actually be yeah. in, the, in the particular Oh, this, I always get accused of that. I didn't want you to solve the problem. I just wanted you to listen to me. Oh, sorry. Just wanted you to <laughs> – yeah. So those of us who like to get things sorted out and move on, yeah. sometimes the being with rather than trying to solve – and then, and, and being with in a non-verbal way, not just a verbal way, you know, to recognise that's a situation, the person is fearful, is in a difficult situation. So the recognition of distress, a lot of the stuff we're talking about without trying to solve it. The second one around transparency, I really like the lawyer example you gave and other examples, is to say, you know, actually providing people with the honesty and the reality of the situation. You know, a person's got cancer. You go, oh, don't worry, it's fine. The doctors will fix it. All cancers are curable. Well, actually, no. You know, if you personally get cancer, it's terrifying and whatever else. And, you know, yeah, it is threatening and it will go stop. And recognising that is the situation somebody's actually kind of in. And in a lot of the medical worlds that we're in, you see that people want honest answers and straightforward answers, not ones that you think will make them feel better. Yeah. <laughs> but actually an openness about the anxieties and the difficulties in the context that we currently face in particular. So that's also one that seems to be in the modern world even harder it's got harder to tell the truth yeah. than ever. Yeah. You know? What about what about workplaces? Um, you know, workplaces are always banging on about culture at, at, at this point. And some workplaces people trust each other and trust management. Some they don't. Most are in between. How do you build trust in, in work? Engagement. So if you get the things that, you know, arrive on the email trail, this morning you will do X because we've decided it's in your interest. Yeah, I, d- I doubt it. <laughs> so, I mean, all successful team-based things, and you've seen this over many years now in, in industry, towards smaller team-based structures, building the actual strength of the relationships between those in the organisation and engagement of people in the decision-making, right? So that not only do you believe they're acting in their interest, you're acting as part of a group that is acting in your interest and your capacity is being taken a part of. I mean, at the moment in the COVID situation where many teams are very disrupted, Trying to maintain that through media and through you know conferences and everything that we're trying to do is really important. But in real life, it happens. And then people will judge the action that comes. I mean, there's this great too. I mean, the world I'm in, we have a great deal of stakeholder consultation. 
You know, everyone gets everyone gets put in their two bobs worth, and then what comes out the other end has nothing to do <laughs> with what was actually taken account of. So your your comment, James, about being listened to is is it listening? You know, or is it just collecting noise? Yeah, and and those sort of iterative loops. So trust is built over time within organisations and teams by genuinely the extent to which the management of those organisations is incorporating in the decision-making processes, and people then judge. I was involved in a discussion with a major organisation recently who wants to lift the trust within the organisation. I did ask them, do you ever do Very anything? <laughs> you know, yeah. they, well, they worked out a PR campaign, and a, you know, a vision statement. I said, look, you can have the statement you like. People are going to make a judgment yourself by what you do. Actually, does it match the particular thing? And I think that's another part of the world we live in. Can we somehow cut that bit out and just produce the right vision statement or the right overarching value statement and everyone will be on board with that. Particularly, I think people are going to judge you by your actions. Yeah. Is, is there a disconnect between what the uh, objectives are and what actually happens every day? Just I remember when I first heard the word stakeholder, I reckon it was about 10 years ago and someone mentioned stakeholder engagement and I was sitting in this meeting going, what the hell are you talking about? What does that mean? What is a stakeholder? And then I eventually got to put it together. Oh, right. You mean everyone who gives a crap. Okay, I understand. Um so well, this now, is an example. It, this is a good, a good example how language and we build processes. And I, I've been, mean, oh, we've done stakeholder engagement, consultation. I go, what? Yeah. <laughs> like who? Okay. And how yeah. genuine? How? And where? How? And like how, and, and did it have these essential human characteristics? And then I often ask, well, who did it? You know, with who? Well, we, we hired a PR firm, we hired a consultancy firm, and they went in. <laughs> You know, a bunch of white Sit out guys. Some surveys. To talk to a bunch of homeless yeah. kids in southwestern Sydney. It went really well. <laughs> you know, go, well, yeah, right. we sent a survey. 3% responded. We're pretty much got on top of this. So, I mean, there is a danger in the world we're in that things become very superficial and then people go, oh, that didn't go so well, did it? So I think, you know, trust has, we're trying to emphasise here, a much deeper human connection kind of capability. If you're really interested and you really need it, you're going to have to spend a time at it. You're going to have to be a bit genuine about it. Yeah. So finally then, that leads us back to where we started. What can our leaders do in this time where they really and we really need them to create trust? What should they be doing differently? You've got to make it clear that it is we. So I'm glad you used the plural there, leaders. I mean, in all these situations at the moment, you've got to see the collective function. So the national cabinet has to function nationally, not the bickering and silliness we've got going on at the moment. At a community level, if you're talking about the community of New South Wales and the current crisis, you've got to see that community. The community of southwestern Sydney has got to see itself represented and its views being expressed in its language by people who come from things that would intrinsically have high levels of trust. I was discussing with a group close uh, to the Kemba Mosque yesterday from an Arabic background, having police knock on their door in white uniforms, wanting to know, you know, what their video production was like. This does not generate trust, okay? This is, those community leaders are the ones who should be out there communicating the message. And I've seen some great examples of doctors from those communities, of community leaders, of women dressed in appropriate ways, speaking with others, generates trust, you know, in the particular communities. For the rest of us, transparency, honesty, what the situation really is. Let's not pretend it's all going away in 10 minutes' time. We've got a really difficult set of challenges in front of us in Australia, as we do globally over the next while. We need people to be straightforward about that. And in the Jacinda Ardern way, just do it authentic, you know, just do it real so that we actually know where we are. I think most of us can relate to that. Look people in the eyes and tell them the truth. Um, What an amazing concept. What an absolutely amazing concept. (laughs) So Try to I get want a to leave, face to match the words. You know. We want to leave you with two questions. Who do you trust 
and who trusts you. If you have any questions or comments or want to suggest some further topics for us to discuss, uh, do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you at mindingyourmind2 at gmail.com. That's mindingyourmindnumeral2 at gmail.com. And uh, our podcast, Minding Your Mind, is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic, I always get scared of that word right at the end of the podcast, but I've got through it again, donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health Thank you. Further help is available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. You can just Google them or call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Talk to you next time.